Welcome to the Enterprise Excellence Podcast, where our purpose is to help create a better future. Learn from our world's experts how to improve your organisation sustainably. Learn how to achieve and sustain an excellence journey for yourself, others and the planet. Welcome to Episode 9 of the Enterprise Excellence Podcast. I'm honoured to have with me the Executive Director of the Shingo Institute and an expert in developing organisational cultures of excellence, Mr Ken Schneider. You would have heard of the Shingo Prize and Shingo Model being mentioned by past guests. It is one of the most prestigious awards an organisation can win, recognising a culture of excellence. Authors can also be recognised for their contribution in this area through a Shingo Prize. Ken has dedicated his career to researching best practices, supporting organisations on an excellence journey, and recognising them through the Shingo Prize as they advance in their work to create a better future. Let's get into the episode. So I'm really pleased to have the CEO of the Shingo Institute with me today, Ken Schneider, who's had an amazing career in enterprise excellence and is involved with the organisation that epitomises enterprise excellence and everything that there is to do with it. So Ken, really appreciate your time today. Okay, thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to tell a little bit about myself and about the Shingo Institute. No, great. Ken, can we start with what got you into this journey initially in your career where you've got involved in enterprise excellence and everything there is to do with it and then ended up in this amazing organization like the Shingo Institute? So I had the opportunity when I was a college student to go to Japan. It was as in in the role of a Christian missionary, but at the same time, I knew I was interested in business, and I took the opportunity while there to learn what I could about Japanese business. And when I came back from Japan, I decided to, to pursue a business interest, and particularly because I was interested in Japanese business, I started studying Japanese business practices. And the, the most influential book that I read at the time was this book right here. It's a book by a professor at, uh, let's see if it shows up, there we go, a professor at Harvard Business School, his name was Mike Yoshino, Professor Yoshino has since passed away, but, but he, um, his book was a, a huge influence on me. I ended up uh, attending Harvard Business School, and, and he was my advisor, and at, we were required at the time, I don't know if Harvard still requires this, but they require a, a a thesis. And so I wrote my thesis about applying Japanese business techniques to Western companies. And I also, in addition to Professor Yoshino's work, I also used this book, which if we can get this to show up or not, uh, it's called Theory Z uh, by a professor at the time who was at UCLA named Bill Auchi. And between uh, Yoshino-sensei and Ochi-sensei, I had the opportunity to learn a lot about the thinking behind applying some of the techniques and, and practices of Japanese business uh, to, a, to Western companies. After business school, I, I took a job with a Japanese company and went and lived in, in Japan again and worked there for a few years and then continued with that company for another decade or so. So I got really immersed in the Kaizen culture, the improvement culture that, that permeates many Japanese companies. So that's, that was where I got started. And this, that goes back over 40 years ago because I'm that old. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I've been on my personal improvement journey when it comes to, to this and applying it in, in business for, for over 40 years. This predates 
the machine that changed the world that predates NUMI, if you know what NUMI is. Uh, it predates the word lean uh, and applying lean to organizations because that, that word didn't exist then. So I don't use the word lean very often. I tend to use either the Japanese word kaizen, which is the word I learned when I was first studying it, or improvement if people are uncomfortable with, uncomfortable with the Japanese word. So again, it's, it's so true what you just said then. It's about building that culture of continuous improvement, isn't it? Not so much yes. whether it's Lean, Six Sigma, Agile, whatever you call it. Yes. So, so let me tell you a little bit about my experience doing that. Is that okay? Yeah, definitely, Ken. Please do. So the, the Japanese company hired me to help them start up their very first foreign investment. They put a plant in, in the United States. And they hired me, and, and I spent a few years in Japan and then worked for them in the States, helping them build their, their very first operation in the States. It was, it was kind of fun to have a greenfield operation and be able to start from scratch and train people from scratch. Um, at the time, the thinking around uh, Kaizen was not that well developed, either in Japan or in the United States. And so we got to experiment with things that we were fairly good at implementing uh, statistical process controls, which is really what, to us, and we had quality QC circles and that. Um, this is back in the 1980s, and so uh, it, it, we started with tools, and, and, and at the time, we pretty much ended with tools, and I found that the culture in, in U.S. organizations is inherently different than the culture that that exists in Japanese organizations. I'll, I'll tell a funny story that might be, be fun for people. You know, everybody's interested in improvement, especially if you give them the opportunity to be, they like to be engaged. But the level of engagement in a, in a Japanese company and an American company is completely different. That doesn't mean the principles are different, but just the way people engage is different. So if we had a, a particular problem we're trying to address when I was running uh, one of the production lines in Japan, we'd have a QC circle meeting, we'd discuss the problem, and then say, does anybody have any ideas on, on how to address this? And it was always everybody looking down at the table, nobody saying anything. Well, totally quiet. Totally quiet. And, and what I learned is Japanese don't say anything until they finally have an answer. And, and they don't necessarily really brainstorm like maybe Westerners do. And they want to think it out. And so as soon as they say something, I mean, which takes a long, long time to extract anything from them, uh, it's really well thought out. It's really good. It's high quality. So uh, completely different experience. I go back and very m much less training. You know, I've got these brand new people who, ha who don't have the training that the people in Japan had. We have a problem and we get a QC circle meeting together and we talk about it and everybody has 12 ideas. I have an idea. I have an idea. None of them are very good. They're not well thought out. They're not, they don't care what other people may think about the ideas either. They're just willing to throw anything out there for the sake. Now, getting them to think a little bit more deeply and in the right way and come up with a better idea than, than maybe just whatever first comes to mind was the challenge with Americans, whereas in Japan it was getting them to speak because most of their ideas were really good, but they wanted to make them perfect before they ever suggested. So a little, you know, the culture is different, but the, the objective is the same. 
and the principles are the same. And that's what I learned over time. Um, I had the opportunity to, to start up another company after I, I left the Japanese company because they, they went through a buyout and, and uh, I didn't mesh well with the new owners. And uh, so I, I took an opportunity to do a, a another startup. And so it was another greenfield operation. And that time it was, it was really fun. Everything went very well. We, we uh, took over a project that had been produced by somebody else and, and quickly re improved the quality. Um, we, we, had, uh, we developed a one-piece, mostly one-piece flow line, eventually turned it into a true one-piece flow line. But at first, there was, only, there was one process we didn't conquer. We had to batch it there, but everything else was one-piece flow. Um, and it was, it was just an amazing experience. Um, and so I've had, I had 30 years in industry, all manufacturing, uh, before I left industry and joined the university and started to get involved with the Shingo Institute. And I've been the executive director of the Shingo Institute for the last five years. I've been involved on the Shingo board now for, for 12 years. I've been a Shingo examiner for 11 years and uh, enjoy a, a lot of things related to working with the Shingo Institute. Ken, I want to explore the Shingo Institute further in a few moments. Do you mind if I backtrack just a moment to where you're talking about the difference between Japanese and working with American? Or maybe I could nearly say Western because obviously that challenge in Australia just the same. We love putting our ideas out there, which is great. <laughs> what did you find as a secret to harnessing those ideas and making them better in that quality circle? But the, the key was training and giving them some experience. The, the more they understood the data, for example, and the more they analyzed the problem, we, we taught them some techniques like what uh, we call the fishbone diagrams because that's what they call them in Japan, but a lot of people call them Ishikawa diagrams in the Western world. So apparently we, you know, <laughs> if I say in Japanese fishbone, they understand it, but if I say Ishikawa in Western culture, they understand that better than fishbone. But anyway, wow, that's crazy. Teach them some tools and, and get them to learn how to use those tools. Uh, and then they start looking at the data and be, having data informed uh, you know, problem identification. Let the data identify the problem and where the problem is, and not just what you think or what your best guess is or something like that. So we found that training was really the, the critical aspect of getting people to have better quality ideas and more on-point ideas, and that really helped a lot. So training comes down to training. Wow. So the training and the systems that you brought into play in the Western culture really helped them think more deeply and come to better yes, solutions. Definitely. Wow. Ken, I see, I see clearly that journey that you've been on and really immersed yourself in the Japanese business and then work, a lot of work in American business also. What drove you to join the Shingo Institute and become part of the university in Utah? Um, it was more a decision to... to I, I, I got a little tired of the corporate rat race. I wanted to give back more and... and uh, you know, I'd, I'd had the experience of running companies and, and that, and I thought, I'd like to go work at a university, and I had uh, an opportunity at Utah State where the Shingo Institute was located, and I thought, that would be great to get involved with the Shingo Institute if I'm going to go join the, the faculty at Utah State. So it was 
coincidental to a, a career change. It wasn't so much I wanted to go get involved with Shingo as much as it was I wanted to get involved with the university. And there's a and the Shingo Institute was part of the university. Well, it was just a, a perfect match in some regards. Yes, yes, it was, it was, and and I've I've enjoyed both. You know, I was the the first assignment I had. I, I've I served for seven years as one of the associate deans in the business school, and I had oversight responsibility over all of the programs, which included the Shingo Institute. So I joined the board, and then later became the chairman of the board. Um, and so I was in, very deeply involved with Shingo, even though I wasn't uh, you know, full time in that. I was working on a lot of things with the school. I, I was in charge of the MBA program for a while. We built a new building that I was responsible for during that time as well. So I did a lot of good things uh, for the school. But, but uh, after I got the building built and I had already shifted a lot of the responsibilities I had in the dean's office over to uh, other people, I, you know, we had an opening come up in the Shingo Institute and I said to the dean, can I go do that, please? <laughs> yeah, I bet you had it on your, your wish list already. Well, it was already, it was kind of on my wish list already. And, and so, yeah, you're exactly right. <laughs> and, and he yeah. said, yes, I'm grateful for that. So we've had a lot of fun the last five years. With continuous improvement journeys that you've been involved in throughout your career prior to getting to the Shingo Institute and the Utah State University. How easy was it for them to succeed? Or how many of them did you actually see succeed and sustain versus have challenges and diminish? Whoa, um, it's, a, it's a lot easier to do it when you, when you do it from scratch. Greenfield, that's why I emphasize the Greenfield. I've, in the, uh, the second time after we had the successful Greenfield startup that we, where we created the One Piece Flow and, and managed to do things to, it it still runs well. I, I went back and visited there last year, and it's still running pretty well. They still have a lot of the same controls in place, and and that it was it was really fun, and it worked well. The culture is still, you know, it was easier to build the culture when there wasn't something you had to overcome. You could just start and build it that way to begin with. Uh, the worry I I've seen as I got involved with with uh, as a corporate, then I got promoted from running that operation to being a, a, a corporate officer. Okay, and we did some acquisitions and and trying to change the culture in some of the acquisition organizations was really hard. And and so I find I, I found being able to build something from scratch to be easier than trying to change something that's already got an established culture. And I, I appreciate what a lot of the people that, that we encounter in the Shingo Institute must be going through because they're, they realize we've got to change something, but they've got to, what they really have to change first and foremost is that culture. And that's the hardest thing to change. And it takes time and it takes good management. It takes a change in management, how the management inter, interfaces with uh, and then engages the people um, I'll, I'll, this, this translates over into the history of the Shingo Institute a bit, but, but we found that the, yeah, the only way that, to Ken. sustain a, 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 an improvement effort is by having the right kind of culture. If you, you can do a lot of improvement, but you're not going to be able to make it sustainable unless you've got the right kind of culture. And we'll talk about that in a minute, I think. But Again, on that, like starting down that path, because I, 
you said that the Shingo Institute has been through a similar journey like that, that something with the Shingo Institute is actually what led it from a path of seeing well, things fail and be tough and then, then head into a path where they found a way to actually help make things stick and sustain? Well, let me do it within the context of the prize. So we started, it, we started the Shingo Prize in 1988. And at first it was mainly North American manufacturing um, that was probably true for the first roughly 10 to 15 years. And we, we had a lot of success in identifying, you know, our, our, our model, our assessment model was based upon systems, tools, and results. If you had good lean systems and you had good lean tools and you got good results from it, you could get a shingle prize. And the problem was is... Most of the organizations that received a shingle prize were not able to sustain their improvement efforts. You'd like to think in continuous improvement that people are going to be good and then keep getting better even if they receive a shingle prize. But what we found is that too many of them, or more than half, would, would kind of peak out and then deteriorate as time went on after they received the shingle prize. And it got so bad that people would come to, to us at the Shingo Institute and say, uh, have you seen them? You gave them a Shingo Prize? They're not very good at all. And it was very concerning to us. And so the people who were at the Shingo Institute at the time uh, did a research study and went and visited several of the recipient organizations, both those that, that had deteriorated and those who had kept getting better and better and better, even after receiving the Shingo Prize. And and the, the big difference, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll do a simple explanation and then, you know, a little bit of lessons learned, if that's okay. That'd be great. But Thanks, the, Ken. The big difference was in the case where they, they were not able to maintain or sustain that improvement effort, the biggest reason was because it had been done to the people. It was in management was doing all the improvements or engineering was doing all the improvements, but the people were not engaged. And, and so they were doing lean to the people. They weren't doing lean with the people. And uh, what we saw with those who were able to sustain their improvement efforts over time and kept getting better and better, they had figured out how to engage the people. The, it was everybody working together on improvement. It wasn't just management. It wasn't just engineering. It was everybody was involved. And they had changed the culture. And there, we... we, we often use uh, this explanation because this is what we publish and what we really found was we, we came away with three uh, key insights that we found from this research of looking at the ones who didn't sustain and especially looking at the ones who did sustain, who were able to sustain that improvement over time. And we often refer to them as benchmark companies, the ones we go and study. And as we study them, then we'll go back to the rest of the world and say, Here's what we've learned from these companies that keep getting better and better. Um, the first thing we learned is in talking to them, they didn't talk about KPIs anymore. They didn't talk about those results anymore. They talked about behaviors. So let me give an example of the, a type of a conversation that we, we'd had with, with these, and we saw it across these multiple organizations. They say, we, we don't look at the results anymore. We don't look, and I'll give safety, I'll use safety as an example. We don't look at the number of recordables, and that's a, a term we use in the U.S., but you have to record 
all the injuries and all the lost time that happens because of injuries. Okay, so we loosely use that the term recordables because you have to record them and report them to OSHA in the U.S. So we don't look at recordables. We look at have we identified anything that might be unsafe? Have we logged all the near misses? Have we taken, and this is what we measure, the key thing we measure is have we tried to error-proof it so that safety issue can't ever happen? We know if we're doing those things, we're not going to have any injuries on the job. We're not going to be losing anybody because they got injured on the job. So it's a, a different mindset. They're looking at those predictive behaviors that prevent any kind of issue. And they you know, they, they say the same thing about quality. They say the same thing about machine breakdowns and, and maintenance. We are doing all these behaviors to prevent breakdowns. We're doing these behaviors to prevent quality problems. And so what we, we put that into what we call uh, our first insight, which is ideal results require ideal behaviors. And can on, if you happen to have a good safety record, but you don't have ideal behaviors, that's just luck. Yeah. It's not <laughs> you know what sustained. I mean? And again, what, what is it that you believe stops more organizations focusing on behaviors instead focusing so heavily on results? Um, because they don't think about the cause of the results, they think about the results. And, and really, if you, want to, if you want to understand the cause of results, you have to think about the behaviors. But I think our, our time frame is just too short. We're, we're narrowing the time frame and just looking at results. And, and often, you know, we'll, you, somebody will see results and you'll have, you know, something red and Sometimes people fear red because we're supposed to be green all the time. But, but you know, what, what happened, they don't look at the cause. They just look at the results and then say, oh, that's a problem. we got to fix it. No, yeah, what you need to do is you've got a problem that was caused long before that because of this behavior. And you've got to change that behavior and you've got to change that process or whatever it may be. Yeah, it and, sounds to me another you're describing you need to focus on those leading behaviors, the root yes. causes that actually lead to that result that you want to get or don't get. Absolutely. You've got to look at the almost all leading, leading indicators. And I, I've seen a few exceptions that are effective leading indicators, like a, a pre-result results in this final result. You know, you can have some leading indicators like that, but most leading indicators are behaviors. They're actions. They're th it's the things people do. Well, that was kind of the first insight. There's two more insights. Let me kind of share those with you, and, and maybe that will also generate some, some additional discussion. The second insight that we had was purpose and systems drive behaviors. And let me explain what we mean by that. When we say purpose, that means there's some greater cause that people get motivated by. And that motivates them to do the right thing. It helps them to understand what that right thing is. So when we say ideal result, it, that ideal result goes back to that purpose. Like, so if, if, our, if, if I'm working for a hospital, you know, I'm there to save lives or help make people better, to me that's a greater purpose. And I can understand how my behaviors can affect that great cause. And, and people are motivated by that. They get excited to go to work because of that. But here's, and here's the catch, and this is why we don't just say purpose drives ideal behaviors, because we as leaders often make it really hard for people to do that right thing. 
And the way we make it easy for people to do the right thing is by putting systems in place that make it easy for them to do that right thing and make it hard for them to do the wrong thing. Right? So purpose and systems drive behaviors. And if you want those ideal behaviors that will drive those ideal results, we need to have a clear purpose and we need to make it easy for people to do the right thing. So purpose and systems drive behaviors. And excuse my ignorance with this, but are you saying that, that you've got that purpose and if you've got that purpose, that motivates and drives and creates energy, that greater cause or that just cause is being used a lot nowadays too? Yes. But then the systems provide a framework, boundaries, a level of quality and ability for people to really do a great job driving yes. towards that just cause or purpose. Is that, have I got that right? Yes, you've got it right. And, and our research has indicated, and this has been substantiated by other research as well, but, but when you make it hard for people to do the right thing, they'll do the right thing anyway if they buy into the just cause, and they'll do that for a period of time. But unless leadership makes it easy, changes the system and makes it easy for people, people get cynical and they say, well, they talk about the right, that, that great cause, but they're not serious about making it easy for us to do it. And so they'll just go back and do the easy thing. They'll fall back on the easy thing because management doesn't care. And, and that, ruins, you know, that ruins the improvement effort because management didn't care enough to make it easy for them to improve. Does that yeah, make sense? It does, Ken. That's brilliant. Thank you. Okay. And the, the third thing that we found, so this is our third insight, is every time we we go and ask one of these benchmark companies, why do you do that? Or why did you do this? Or what led you to get to that, that improvement and whatever? They can always explain it to us. They can always say, well, we did that because of this. We did that because of this. We started collecting all of those because of explanations, okay? And we put it in the form of principles. And to us, principles are things that are, Timeless, meaning they were true thousands of years ago. Those continue to be true thousands of years from now. They're universal. They're true in Australia. They're true in China. They're true in the U.S. They're true in Japan, and they're true in your. true everywhere. So they're timeless. They're universal, and there are consequences of either following the principle or not following the principle. Meaning, you get a good result if you do it, and you get a bad result if you don't. So. We started collecting all of these whys, okay, these explanations, and formulating them into principles. And that's we and we say uh, principles, guiding principles, inform ideal behavior. And and so we developed a, a ten uh, shingle guiding principles that we've put into our shingle model. And that's, a, we think, a really important missing piece in our previous way we were doing assessments because to us, the, the culture is the accumulation of all of the behaviors of the people in an organization. Don't, don't point to some value statement on the wall and say, well, that's what we believe in. No, let us observe what you do. Don't tell us you're honest if, if you're, you know, you're deceiving your suppliers and telling them one thing and doing another, or you're promising high quality to your customers but not delivering high quality to your customers. We will believe your actions. We will not believe what you say you put, you know, what you've put on the wall. 
culture is all about the behaviors. And those principles guide those ideal behaviors. They explain why. Well, Ken, do you mind, again, I've got a question on that. So principles don't really are about what do you see the behaviors of people in the organization? What principles are they living by? Not necessarily what's written on the wall in a value statement or anything like that. Yes, that is correct. Absolutely correct. So that's one reason why we do a shingle price assessment. We go and observe the activities of the people, the actions, the behaviors of the people. We want to see what they do. We don't want to see that they have a slogan that says safety first. That's powerful, Ken. Let me just give an example. I was was in a, 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 not a car, but a vehicle manufacturing plant not too long ago. And they had a safety first sign on, but I noticed several unsafe behaviors. And and to me, it's like, no, the behaviors have to, you have to have the behaviors match to make it really part of the culture. They have to really act like safety is first. So, And Ken, do you mind me asking, where do you... Where do you believe or where do principles come from within an organization? What creates the principles that an organization's living by? And ultimately then I guess the behaviors you see when you're assessing. I think the principles are already there. It's it's a question of whether the organization is paying attention to him or or letting those principles guide what they do. So, and and I'll I'll, I'll give them an example of, Let's just say a company's value is we make money to make money. It's all about making money. Well, to me, that is not a purpose. That's just, you know, uh, a uh, ownership and, and leadership just wants to benefit from the, from the efforts of everybody else, you know. It's, it's not trying to solve some just cause or great cause. It's not trying to make a difference in the world or, or whatever. We, we don't see that as something that motivates people. That a purpose has to be something that people can rally around. It has to be something that people you know, get excited about wanting to be part of. They make them excited to go to work, because not because they're just getting a paycheck, but because they're making a difference. And, and we, so you, you can't just have a purpose. You have to have a meaningful purpose. You have to have a purpose that people unite around and unify around. You've got to have a purpose that people can understand and relate to. You, you can't just have it be something that's meaningless and petty, uh, and not and not lasting. And so, when we when we teach this, we 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 not just teach. You've got to have a purpose, but you've got to have a purpose with meaning. You've got to and and so on. That's true of all of the principles. Um, and we find a lot of organizations maybe doing really well in some aspect, but not so well in other aspects. And that's often what happens when we go to a site visit. We'll say, wow, they are really good at this. They're world-class, truly world-class at this, you know, in some cases even best in the world that we've ever seen at this, but boy, they've got a long ways to go on this. And it's not unusual. It's not unusual to see that they've, they've identified something where they can really rally around and do a good job at, but they're missing something. And the problem is, is, is when that happens, there's a consequence. The consequence of doing something well is, is that you get the reward from it, 
But if you're not doing so well here, you don't get the reward from that. You still have a problem and an opportunity to improve in that area. And that's one of the things why assessments are so valuable, because sometimes we don't even see we're not doing well in something. I'll, I'll tell you a story. I, I, I love the chances I get to be a Shingo site examiner, okay? So I'm on a site visit, visiting a, a company. They make uh, a product that, it, it, well, it's a pharmaceutical company that makes a product for juvenile onset diabetes, okay? And so they're really making something that helps children live, thrive, grow, develop without their medicine. Uh, it's, you know, as, and the way they package it, children would be struggling, dying, and, and so on. Most of the people, we asked them for their own self-evaluation before we go. And, and they said, we don't, we're, we're, our, our understanding and good pur our purpose, we think is okay. We're, you know, we're not doing great, but we're not doing bad. On the flip side, they, they had uh, a clinic inside their, their facility with two doctors. They had uh, one of the doctors is dedicated to identifying repetitive stress injuries using a special software program we'd never seen before anywhere in the world. Um, they have a family, a family, they can bring their families in for checkups. That's all part of the health. You know, they're providing great safety program and so on. We've never seen anywhere that took as good a care of their people anywhere in the world. Wow. Wow. And yet most of the people who worked there did not know that the product that they made was used for juvenile onset diabetes. And, and really when you ask them, what's the purpose here? And they go, Oh, wait, mm. they couldn't even explain to us that we make a huge difference in the lives of these kids. Wow. So they're very strong in one, one principle. And very then, strong in one principle, you know, world-class in one principle, and just missing the whole opportunity to engage the people around the idea of we're helping these children live and thrive. And yeah, so you know, one, of, one of the recommendations we made to them is bring some of the patients who, who benefit from your mess in to meet your people. Put the posters up on the wall. Make, you know, celebrate it when they start using your pharmaceutical product to thrive and let them see how kids can thrive. And they go, oh, we never thought about that. Yeah, that's so, amazing. And they, do, they do that now. And it's wonderful to see the impact it's had on the people within that organization because now they have that great cause to rally around. So, yeah, no, I, think, I think I've experienced that. I, I was lucky enough probably 15 years ago to work with AutoLive down in Melbourne. I wasn't mm -hmm. one of their employees, but I was a contractor in there doing work with them. And everyone I spoke to there knew that their purpose was to save lives, that we, we save, save lives. lives. No matter who you spoke to. Up on the wall. Yeah, and the energy it drove in them to be precise, yeah. to think of ways to improve. And it also too was driving them to look at ways to do things faster and cheaper and quicker because they felt that, even that element helped save more lives because it made it more, more affordable for their devices to go into more cars. It was impressive. So, so let me tell you, an auto, auto league is world-class when it comes to that constancy of purpose um, principle. Um, I, I have a chance, I've visited probably oh, six or seven different auto league plants around the world. We are lucky to have three auto league plants within a short drive from where I live. 
And so I get to I, I get to take students there. We we do workshops there. We do study tours and so on. So I, I've probably visited twenty visited auto leave facilities probably 25, 30 times over the last decade. Okay, um, I always take an opportunity to just go randomly ask people, tell me about your latest improvement project. And they always have one because they're always thinking about what they can improve. And usually it's with a team member who's work, working on the production line and they'll show me something. Well, I did this and I did, you know, and they'll, they just always get excited. And every time I've asked them, they not only tell me about the improvement process, but they always, they have this discipline within AutoLeave of, of tying it to, they'll, they'll go through what, what scholars call it. I don't know if, any, if you know any of the works of, of uh, Professor Hibino in, in Japan, but no, I don't. he calls it purpose expansion. You, you make an improvement, but that improvement ties to this greater purpose, to this greater purpose, and ultimately to the great purpose of we save lives in the case of AutoLeave. Okay, so they always, every time I've ever asked that question to any AutoLeave person, they take me through their purpose expansion and tie it back to we save lives. So I, the most shocking experience I had, though, was talking to one of their accountants one time. And I said, tell me about your latest improvement project. And she walks me through this. She says, well, we have some of our suppliers we can rely on, and some we can't always rely on so we have as much, so we have safety stock. And that ties up inventory and, and ties up money in that inventory. Well, as I was, I decided to do a review of all of our suppliers, and I found that we could, we could, some of them had improved their performance where we didn't have to hold as much safety stock. And so I changed our safety stock limits and freed up, and I don't remember the amount of money, something like $50,000 or something like that, in budget money because we didn't need to have the safety stock. And I, I redirected that money in the budget to this research project that would be, do this to our airbags that would then save lives. That's impressive. And I'm, and I'm <laughs> going, even the accountants tie it back to how they're going to oh, save lives. <laughs> that is over and above. That is something else. That's amazing. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> yeah. I could imagine it, but from what I experienced even 15 years ago. Yeah. Ken, we, we, I've really... Enjoy, I'm really enjoying this conversation. Like what we've covered is amazing stuff and thank you for the insights you've even given me. Do you mind explaining a bit about the Shingo Institute? Just an overview on it. What, what is it? What does it do? What, how can people get involved with the Shingo Institute? So initially, so let me just go through uh, the, the evolution or the history. So we, we did that Shingo, we just did the Shingo Prize for the first almost 20 years of the organization. And then we went to that research project. So that was really the first time we had done research. And we've continued our research element and everything we've done since then. But early 2000s, we started doing research into why some companies kept getting better and why some single price recipient organizations failed miserably and, and so on. And, and when we published that, we also published that research. We also changed the model that we use for assessment. And then people said, this is great. Can you teach us about it? And that was kind of like, hmm. So we developed a, a workshop to introduce the Shingo model to the world. And we called it at the time Shingo 101. We now call it the Discover Excellence Workshop. I don't know if you've had a chance to, to attend our I workshop have, or not. But I have, Ken. It so, was amazing. 
Yeah, so so that that happened in about 2008. At the time I joined the the university and started getting involved with Shingo, the institute had just uh, developed the workshop or was in the process of developing the workshop, had just published the model and was changing the assessment model. So um, from that we started, that was the first time we started teaching, but it fits with the mission of the university. So the, the, we really narrowed down our, what we do to three key things. One is we, ad, we administer the prize. We do assessments, which is, involves the prize, and we do things to celebrate. We have events to celebrate that. And that's really what our conferences are about, is about the assessment of organizations and having, f providing a forum to recognize them and providing a forum for others to learn from them through them explaining what they did to be able to get that good to be able to be recognized with a prize. So we call that assessment. The second thing we do is we do research. We do research particularly around how to improve the process of improvement. We want to understand how to do things better. You know, Toyota got to where Toyota is because they've been doing it now for 70 years. How can we teach people better so they can do that? What Toyota took 70 years to do, somebody else can do in 10. Yeah, that's impressive. If you, if you understand what I mean. So that's what the research is all about. How can we share what we learn from others so that it makes it easier for people to improve that process of improvement? And we do education. We, we, we used to teach the workshops ourselves, but it, we've got the, the demand group beyond our capacity to do it. So we started uh, using teaching partners, which we now call affiliates. Um, and, and you're probably familiar with, with some of the affiliates that, are, that work in Australia, but particularly yes. SA Partners and yes. Chris Butterworth and, and that group. They do a great job of, of, of teaching the workshops. It helps us because we don't have the capacity to grow to meet the level of demand. And we also, because we're a public university, we are not allowed to do consulting. Um, and many of the people uh, consulting, whether, whether you call it consulting or coaching or helping people, but just teaching them and then kind of leaving them uh, to fend for themselves was not working very well either. And so what we needed was partners who could not only teach what we had prepared in terms of the curriculum, but then also follow up with coaching and, and follow through and, and some of that consulting work that, that we weren't able to provide. And so... We focus on, on the education, we focus on the assessments, we focus on the research. And we leave our, our partners to focus on the actual interface with, with most of the organizations out there. Yeah, that's impressive. Because I guess, Ken, with it, like you said, training's the start of it, but to change habit and truly shift behavior, it takes a lot of effort and it often takes support, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And and. And it takes outside eyes. We, we find, and I, I can understand that having been in industry for 30 years, and now I look back on, on and we, we can talk about some lessons learned, if you will. I look back and go, dang, I wish I'd have known that. And, and maybe if I'd have had somebody come in and just look at it for me, they would have said, you know, Ken, you're doing all right there, but you're you got a problem over here. That Maybe you want to look at how you might improve that. Uh, Ken, if I had a dollar for every time I thought, if only I knew <laughs> back then what I know now. Uh-huh. It gets worse as you get older, trust me. I bet. <laughs> Ken, on that, that's a good segue. What advice would you give to a young leader 
or a young new person getting involved in business improvement or any cross-functional improvement team, whether it be safety, quality, environment, what advice would you give them? Oh, this, this gets into the what, what do I wish I knew then that I know now question, yep. right, right, right to the heart of it, isn't it? Um, let, me, let me just pick number one on my mind right now is, is systems yep. and how systems can drive ideal behaviors, okay? Go, getting back to that, um, I look back and I say, I had a system to do that, but, and, and, and it didn't really work very well. And I think back, why didn't it work very well? Now I understand a lot better after, after we've done some research into that specific topic at the Institute, I go, it was missing that piece. And, and, and I'll tell you the most common piece we found that, that causes systems not to work right is that it's missing some sort of a feedback loop. Or, or some people call it an audit function, but I'll, I'll call it a feedback loop. So you, you have a system that's supposed to do this. You have a purpose behind that system. That's why you created that kind of work for people to do. It's for the system to do this. But it didn't, it's not working. Why is it not working? Well, chances are it's missing some critical piece that makes it work. And one of those is feedback. And I, I, I read, this dawned on me one time when I was listening to uh, a guy by the name of Brent Allen, who is a chief operating officer of a manufacturing firm that's here in Utah. And we had him speak at a conference. We knew they'd do, been doing some good work with systems. And, and he, he said the same thing. He said, when we started diving into systems and trying to say, well, a system needs to have these things in order to work, we found that most of the systems we have within our company are missing one of those critical elements. <laughs> and then he gave the example of not having a feedback loop. And I sat there going, well, crap, that's what I was forgetting. Yeah. I missed that. That's why that thing didn't work. I didn't have that feedback loop. So we didn't know whether the system was working right or not. And that didn't trigger us to make some action on, oh, we've got to go fix that. And be, so, yeah, there's critical elements in a system that if you don't, you know, and we, I think we've done a good job identifying those through our research that we've done as to which systems work and which don't. And, and so to me, that's one of the, the big things that I look back and I go, oh, I could have done a lot better job if I would have gone through and made sure we had all of our systems working right and had all of the elements to make them successful and drive those right kinds of behaviors. Yeah, Ken, I've been having that awkward feeling of reflection while you've been talking about that. <laughs> you can even think of some examples in your life? Many. <laughs> Many, huh? Okay. I think we'll just move on for the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Hurts too much? <laughs> oh, yes, yes. And the, the, know, and, the, and the pain and wasted energy that you cause yes. when you don't do that. That's yes. a bit that smarts. And, and you, know, you think about all the effort you put into it and it didn't work and you go, why didn't it work? And then when you figure out it didn't work and you kind of look back and you go, I should have realized that 20 years ago, not today. Yeah, I know <laughs> but, what you mean. But, you know, so, so this is one thing where we think we can improve the process of improvement. 
is by teaching people if you really want to make the system work and drive those ideal behaviors, you've got to have all of these elements in it. You've got to have these tools in it. And then their system will work the way you want. And so, yeah. Yeah, that's impressive. So, Ken, staying on the topic of uh, feedback loops and reflection, yes. what, what have you learned in the last few years that you didn't know previously? What's been an insight for you? Oh, when, when I've changed from being somebody who's doing it to somebody who is studying, and I, I get to visit 60, 80 good companies every year, okay? Mm, now I'm nice. doing it much more virtually, but, but you know, I've, I've had a chance to visit, visit 60 to 80 different companies every year for the last five years. That's hundreds of companies, and they're the best companies in the world. They're the ones that are applying for the prize, or I'm going as a site visitor. We've taken it, we're taking a group of people on a study tour and, and, and benchmarking them and all that. These are some of the best companies in the world. So what's been really fun is seeing how good so many people are in different places around the world and what the potential is for everybody else to get that good. Mm, wow. and, and, and to me, that's really the role of the Shingo Institute is, is let's help everybody get better because people benefit by being through that engagement, through having a purpose and a meaning to go to work. There's a, there's a great Japanese word that, that uh, I'd like to use because it, it has a more profound meaning than, than any equivalent we have in English. And the word is ikigai. I don't know if you've heard the term or not. But ikigai. Ikigai. I-K-I-G-A-I. Ikigai. You could, there's actually been some English books written with that title, so you can do a search on, on Amazon and, and find it. But, but it, it's really, what's the meaning to life? And th there's a, a word that, that goes with it that, mean, that is yarigai, which means to doing, particularly doing work. And, and most Japanese find their ikigai in their work, not necessarily in other parts of their life, which is, I think, unfortunate. I, I hope I find a balance between the ikigai I have at work and the ikigai I have with my family and, and, and yeah. outside of work uh, meaning as well. But, but uh, it's, it's a place where, you, you know, where you find your passion and your, the things that excite you all converge together and you find fulfillment in life. I like to think of it as a personal flow. You know, you're, you're flowing your life towards that greater ikigai, if you will. Um, and that's where the principle of flow comes, becomes more personal as opposed to applying it to a production line or something like that. But to the, you know, to the, you know what's the purpose of my life? And, and I, like to, I like to think about those kinds of things. I see the Shingo Institute fitting very well in, in my ikigai because i was i've been doing this for over 40 years i was interested in it when i was a teenager i was i studied it when i was in and and wrote about it when i was a, a master's student it's something that just has always excited me and i still get excited by it and and love to learn more about it and now i'm in a position to go see the best of the best and see what they're doing and then try to put that into something where we can teach the rest of the world how to do it the way what we're seeing the best in the world are doing. Yeah, and, that's and, impressive. And so you don't have to, you don't have to, you don't have to fight and learn trial and error and take 70 years to get there. You can do it a lot faster and we can, you know, point you in the right direction and give you the right kind of motivation.
Ken, that's that's impressive. Ken, the ikigai of the podcast, and that's really core to myself, is creating a better future. You know, it's creating a better future economically, environmentally, socially. And that's what I hope this podcast plays a big part for our listeners. And I can definitely say this podcast has done that. It's helped me. So, Ken, thank you. Again, if people want to learn more about the Shingo Institute, how can they track you, you down and how can they track down the Shingo Institute? So, um, the best thing to do about learning, learning about the model is you can download. We have a Shingo model handbook that's both electronic or you can get a printed version. But you can download that from our website. And so we, I'd encourage you to learn more by just downloading the Shingo model handbook. If you want to get more serious about it, that's where you start needing to, to sit through the workshops and, and learn in detail the things that we've learned from the best of the best. And, and I, you know, we, we start people with the Discover Excellence workshop. We've now started this new systems design workshop, which we, we, we say you ought to take right after the Discover Excellence workshop because it will help put a structure to your improvement efforts that you probably have never thought of before and can really make a difference in how quickly you can improve. And then we start getting, you know, our Discover, we, in curriculum design, we, we have what you know, typically have breadth workshops, you know, breadth courses, if you will, you know, introduction to economics or principles of marketing or whatever it may be, where you learn all about marketing, but you don't learn very much, or you learn all about economics, but you don't learn very much. That's what the Discover Excellence is. It gives you the overview of the model, but it doesn't get you diving deep into it. Um, what we have next are, are workshops that are designed to dive deep into it, and we call those, uh, they're built around the dimensions of the principles. So one is cultural enablers. How do you build the right kind of culture? One is continuous improvement. How do you, how do you go about doing continuous improvement? And the other is about enterprise alignment. That is the purpose. And how do you make the whole organization unify around that purpose in a, in a systemic way? And oh. so I, I'd, encourage, I'd encourage everybody. I, we think those workshops provide great value in that process of improvement. And so that's, that's why we, we have those and offer those. Yeah, Ken, I've, I can vouch for that. I've been on the Discover Excellence workshop and it was an eye-opener for me. It was run by Chris Butterworth and it was impressive. That was probably now five years ago and it was, yeah, the best course I've ever been on. Ken, on behalf of all the listeners who will listen to this and gain value and insight, thank you. And thank you to all the great work the Shingo Institute's doing to help create a better world and really live that future. And I really appreciate your time today. Thank you for having me. And, and yes, uh, if, you, if anybody that needs uh, to contact us, you can do it through our website or do it through, you know, contact one of our licensed affiliates, which you can find on our website. So, yeah, Chris is a great partner. And, you know, Chris retired recently. I don't know if he told you that. But yeah. But his, some of his uh, the people he trained are still our, our great partners at SA Partners there in, in Australia. And so uh, you, can, you can look them up and, and work with them as well. We, we enjoy the partnership that we have with them and, and the other partners we have around the world. So. Well, thank you so much, Ken. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Cheers.